0: Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 279 of the Standard Issue Podsy. I'm Mickey Noonan and the older I
1: get, the more I enjoy the simplicity of a ready salted crisp. They are my favourites and I recently had a conversation with some friends about this, about an icebreaker question that one of my friends had endured on a professional course thing. What kind of crisp are you? And I was like, I think I'm a ready salted. And they were like, no, you're fucking not. They were like, that is not aspirational at all. And I was like, I like a ready salted crisp. It's my favourite.
0: Not long ago, Mickey of the past would have said that was maybe a boring answer. But I just, you know,
2: they never let you down, really. They don't. Can I just say, I like a ready salted crisp is not a boring answer. I am a ready salted crisp (laughs) is a boring answer.
1: Dependable, still very tasty. That's fine, isn't it? What, What, you know.
0: I think we just found out what Jen's old Tinder profile was. Pendable, <laughs> still very tasty.
2: As we know, I'm banned. <laughs> when I was in Romania and I was on a walking tour, because that's who I am now. Actually, that's who I been. <laughs> she had some old Soviet-style crisps that were really big. In, well, they weren't really big. They were the only crisps you could get in Romania, she said. And she was like, they're absolutely disgusting. They're awful they're horrible they you know and then we ate some and I was like they taste exactly the same as (laughs) wotsits I mean I don't like wotsits but I was expecting something definitively shitter than that well perhaps it's just an indication of how shit wotsits are context was important though if they're the only crisp you can have
0: and you Um, want to try other crisps and I would argue that a wotsit is not a crisp it's a maize based snack uh, then then you will right. probably oh, get okay. bored and depressed by I'm them. I'm out of
2: my depth already. <laughs> I leave this conversation. I'm, I'm out of depth. If
1: you're going to chat to me about crisps, you come in prepared, Hannah and Liby, and you know that. <laughs> Have you tried the uh, £4.99 Torres crisps, Mick? Oh, God, I love them so
0: much. <gasps> and they've got a bull on the cover, which yeah. you
1: know, delights me. Yeah, they're amazing. Ooh, the truffle ones are very nice, but they are £4.99, and I do get angry if people come to my house and eat them all £3.70 at the posh bar in uh, E17 babes posh bar in E9 babes very much 4 99 <laughs> what a fucking Hormerton premium on crisps shut up
2: <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm no longer incommunicado whoop whoop what's the opposite of that out communicado just communicado I think just communicado just communicado if you know the answer, ring me, text me, WhatsApp me, email me. It's all possible now. Thank
0: fuck. Yeah, it was a it was a wasteland for you, just you and your Soviet WhatsApp's and no one to tell <laughs> you.
2: It was a wasteland for you guys on Thursday as yeah. well. Given that we had no email at all,
1: if you try to email any of us on Thursday and you haven't heard back from us yet, maybe just resend that email now. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. In any kind of order, because we're very confused
0: by messages at the moment. <laughs>
1: I'm Jen Offord and I'm about to get strong Her Mickey's yes, taking me to church. Her church.
2: The church of strong wow. women. The gym that thinks it's a rave. I'm excited. And then afterwards you get to come out and eat some ready so crisps. <laughs> That's why I go
0: to the gym. So I can nail the a fucking family pack. Get in the bin. Well, no, get in my face. Uh, I am the bin there you go I am the bin now we've got my old Tinder profile
3: <laughs>
1: I think that is a very legitimate reason for going to the gym by the way crisps crisps mm-hmm. yeah crisps yeah, carrot cake of, that's what takes your fancy and it is what takes my fancy so you know I had ready salted crisps for breakfast because I'm a grown up now <laughs> <laughs> and then I had some
0: protein porridge because I'm going to the gym later so you know you've got to be sensible about these things you do Coming up, comedian and classicist Natalie Haynes talks to me about goddesses, the subject of her latest book, Divine Might, and introduces me to my second favourite spinster.
2: Thanks! I talked to actor Angelie Mahindra about the Lazarus Project and why she's so bloody great in it. Yeah, it's basically just 15 minutes of me telling her I love her. But yeah, good She listener. really is great in it.
1: <laughs> There's a Mary Erps Lovin' in Jenny Off the Blocks and in Rated or Dated, we were not expecting that 1993's The Piano. And I'm not even talking about the Scottish accents, lads. Blimey! <laughs> Apologies
0: in advance to all our Scottish listeners, because I imagine we'll all like descend into them at some point during
2: rated or dated. <laughs> I am shit at accents, but I reckon anything I conjure <laughs> better than some of those. Couldn't be worse than Harvey. My Keitel's. friend Jackson
0: is a better Scottish accent than their <laughs> Scottish accents. <laughs> 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 But first, conspiracy theories, (laughs) conspiracy theories and questionable lifestyle choices. It's all kicking off in the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush
2: Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where I'm dangerously close to believing something Nadine Doris said.
0: Oh, we are truly through the looking glass, Hannah, and you're (laughs) going to have to tell me more. I
2: don't know who I am anymore. (laughs) I don't know who you are anymore. (laughs) She's made some claims. One, for example, saying that a Tory MP had sex with a woman on a table while four other Tory MPs watched. That was one of them. And I'm really torn because I think Nadine Doris is a fantasist. But you know what? Given how many Tories in this government have been accused of things or even found guilty of things, I don't know what to think anymore, Mickey. It's incredible that
0: anyone has got the whip left in the Tory government, to be honest with you.
2: Quite. I was having this conversation with my mother. We don't need an Another election, we just have to wait for enough of them to, to be kicked out. We could just have a slow takeover by the other parties.
0: Oh my god, imagine that in the annals of history, twenty twenty three, when the British public just decided to wait it out.
2: <laughs> so,
0: Hannah, I have got a little list for you: okay. giving up smoking.
4: I've done it.
0: Keep your powder dry. Getting into the gym. <laughs> staying out late. Having too many sherbets. Joining the sourdough movement jogging or yogging it might be a soft j command quotes in lieu of a personality as you very rightly excitedly said we can both tick a few off there and agree we have made lifestyle choices but you know hold on to your hats there is a new hipster kid on the lifestyle choices streets and that is sleeping rough in a tent in freezing temperatures (laughs) oh i'm in (laughs) (laughs) The answer to who knew is nobody except uh-huh. horrific empathy vacuum and, lucky us, our Home Secretary, Soella Braverman, yeah. who tweeted, quotes, I mean, so clearly a quote. We yeah. cannot allow our streets to be taken over by rows of tents occupied by people, many of them from abroad, living on the streets as a lifestyle choice. Uh, From abroad, in inverted commas, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just classic Braverman, isn't it? Coming over here, sleeping in tents, taking up space (laughs) on our pavement that could be used by the people born here, who we also treat like shit. You can see a point. No, no, if you've got a scintilla of humanity, you probably can't. I've got, you know, stuff that I could say on this ridiculous comment, but it mostly is just me shouting, fuck the Tories in an increasingly loud and angry voice. So I'm going to hand over to the experts, in this case, Shelter, who responded with the following. Let's make it clear, living on the streets is not a lifestyle choice. It is a sign of failed government policy. No one should be punished for being homeless. Criminalising people for sleeping in tents and making it an offence for charities to help them is unacceptable. The housing emergency boils down to people not being able to afford to live anywhere. The current scenario, they also had a little list. Private rents are at an all-time high, Evictions are rising and the cost of living crisis continues. This, combined with decades of government failure to build genuinely affordable social homes, is what is driving record levels of homelessness and leaving thousands of people on the streets. The government promised to end rough sleeping, but is falling short of the mark. This is me again now. Because, yeah, the government did promise to end rough sleeping. Indeed, just last year, it published a strategy to achieve the end of rough sleeping in England by 2024. That is next year, even though years seem to be taking at least four. That is next year. (laughs) And it pledged to spend £2 billion over three years. Leading homelessness charity Crisis has said the government looks likely to miss this target and has also condemned Braverman's words. Matt Downey, Chief Executive Crisis, said in the last 12 months in London, there's been a 29% increase in people experiencing their first night on the streets. This is a consequence of poverty and poverty in this country has been exacerbated by policy choices. I mean, I haven't physically seen the spreadsheet outlining the planned financial spending on this strategy, this £2 billion strategy, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was just one column with the header,
2: be a cunt.
0: Which appears to be Broderman's lifestyle choice.
2: Yeah, I read a really interesting tweet thread this weekend. I think I'm pretty sure I retweeted it. It was from someone from Milton Keynes City Council about how they've made the effort to fix rough sleeping there. Because Milton Keynes, as I've said on this podcast many times, Milton Keynes had the, the highest rate of rough sleeping amongst young men aged between 16 and 25. It was pretty bad there. And she details what they did. Basically, they uh, acquired a space and encouraged people to go into it at night so they could be warm and fed. And she says, with the exception of 15 people who have refused to go inside, which is their choice, you know, and in that case, it is their choice. It wasn't their choice to be homeless, but it's their choice to not go into that place. That they've got everyone off the streets. And Milk Keynes is not a place that's abundant with money. So they have managed to find either the money or the time or the compassion to try and sort that and to say that sleeping in a tent is a lifestyle choice is fucking shameful anyway i want to talk about something important but before that i have to talk about something else important which i can't really talk about hopefully that is as clear as mud Just You may or may not know that plans are afoot in government to curb our right to protest in response to recent marches in central London. You also may or may not know that I'm a big fan of the right to peacefully protest. As I'm sure Mickey will remember, along with the many people who got in touch to call me a right wing shill when I disapproved of Trudeau's handling of the Canadian trucker protests, I believe in the right to protest, regardless of whether I believe in whatever shit you're protesting. And so, yes, I am concerned. But this government is in the habit of announcing things that never get off the ground. So I am going to wait for more detail before I say anything on that.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Hannah, and how you approach people's right to protest, our right to protest. And I do want to make it clear that I wasn't one of the people who got in touch to call you a right wing (laughs) shill. I just I feel I, I need to get that out there.
2: Was it because my WhatsApp was down, my email was down?
0: Oh, yeah, you're going to get a flood of messages from me calling you just that, yeah.
2: <laughs> Hopefully you'll get that message where I asked to borrow your hairdryer so I can blow the COVID out of my nose. <laughs> anyway, what I can talk about and I'm going to talk about is something equally, if not earth-shakingly important, the Marks and Spencer Christmas affair, which appears to have made many people fully lose their minds. Fully
0: well, lost their mind.
2: The ad, if you've not seen it, contains a number of famous types, Hannah Waddingham, Zoe Ashton, Tan France, wasn't sure who that was, but now I know, and Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Giving it their all to make Christmas special, but finding one element of the whole thing, be it sending cards or board games, too much to bear. All accompanied by a cover of loafs, I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. Now, if I was forced to pick a problem with this advert, it would be that cover version. <laughs> I'm not sure who decided that Christmas adverts must have a woman singing a man's song very slowly. But please, for the love of God, stop it. Women have their own songs that go at their own speeds.
0: Agreed. I want to blame Richard Curtis, <laughs> but I feel that might be unfair. I think most
2: things are fair game with Richard Curtis, to be honest. With you. <laughs> Other than that, I'd argue that within the remit that it's an advert, it's actually not a bad job. It very accurately shows that women do the vast majority of the graft for Christmas. And if they choose to hurl their elf on the shelf into the dark night, good on them. Right, everyone? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, dear God. <laughs> First up came the complaints that are still from the campaign, which doesn't actually appear in the advert, of paper hats burning in a fireplace was designed to represent a burning Palestinian flag. Some people went further, saying there was something about Sofia Specks' design makeup that was about Israel. I shit you not,
0: <laughs> absolute nonsense.
2: M&S apologised for the inadvertent faux pas, which I'm not sure it should have given. This was clearly a reach, and of course, it opened the door to more complaints. Film director Ken Loach, who must have missed the point of the mini scandal, mentioned it in a speech he gave this weekend, getting the crowd to boo M&S who he said had apologised for using the colours of Palestine as if it were a pro-Israel protester that had called for the change. Uh... One more thing to add, that hat, which everyone keeps saying is white, is very clearly silver. It really is. It really is. But the door was also open to another kind of crazy and in walked Catherine Singh, Britain's toughest headmaster, brackets self-styled, who shared an open letter calling for the advert to be withdrawn. Here's some prize extracts from that. Quote, you have a duty as our national department store to keep (laughs) the spirit of Christmas alive for the sake of our child. I think I should probably have said children, but anyway, here's another one. Quote, we want our children to do more than exist as the old Ebenezer did building his chain. We want our children to live For the
0: love of God, won't you let them live? Oh my God. She
2: also tried to invoke three ghosts. I shit you not. (laughs) And on the hell site, formerly known as Twitter, asked people to write their own complaints. I'd encourage everyone to send her an elf on the shelf instead. And for the rest of us to stop fixating on Christmas adverts. The end.
0: Yeah. So my husband works in creative advertising. And I said, Gary. How long is it in, like, the pipeline and, and everything for an advert of that, like... It's it's big, right? An advert that big to run. Mm. He said they basically start working on it as soon as the Christmas is done. Start in January. Script sort of done by mid-summer. Filming probably no later than August.
2: Yeah. I did see someone respond to Marks and Spencers with the statement, yeah, if you made it in August, why are you only using it now? <laughs> <laughs> oh people (laughs) would you like to hear a story about a sheep who was lonely and is now not lonely rhetorical question (laughs) because it's hooray for Fiona a you who has been trapped at the bottom of some cliffs in the Scottish Highlands for two years is that a Shrek joke do you think calling her Fiona
0: yeah probably a reference rather than a joke because it's not very funny
2: Reference, yeah. As in, Fiona needs rescuing. Fiona! Anyway, the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals previously described any attempt to rescue Fiona as incredibly complex. But last week, a group of five farmers managed to do just that, and she has since been shorn, which must have felt amazing, (laughs) and is now adjusting to a life of not standing on her tod in the middle of nowhere. A row has now broken out about where Fiona's going to live because, of course, it has because we can't have nice, uncomplicated things. So let's just be pleased that she's not going to spend the rest of her life in total isolation. Don't turn on the news, Fiona. You'll only want to go back.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if only that was an option for us, Hannah. Instead, (laughs) more news next week.
1: (laughs) Well, you have equal
0: pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, given there's enough awfulness in the world, I'm turning this section on its head and using it for positive news. Wowzers! Oh, Hannah, though, it does come with the caveat that you're probably not going to have a nice time because that's right, I'm talking tampons.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's so unfair. Why don't I get good news like everybody else? I'm
0: going to send you a walnut whip and a spinny chair, and then you'll be fine. I
2: did
0: give you a spinny chair.
2: I did give you a spinny chair. (laughs) you did give me a spinning chair yeah thanks to innovative gynecological health startup day d-a-y-e founded by
0: valentina milanova a tampon is being repurposed to screen for sexually transmitted infections with the at-home test aiming to encourage more women to seek treatment day's mission statement is to raise the standards in gyne health and help everyone monitor and improve their menstrual sexual hormonal and reproductive health and this screening kit could speed up diagnosis and treatment, particularly among patient groups who are anxious or embarrassed about going and getting a test. And growing numbers of people are experiencing sexually transmitted infections, with a 24% increase in 2022 compared with 2021, according to the UK Health Security Agency. And fun for us. Women are statistically more at risk than men due to our vaginal physiology. I never say, is it vaginal, vaginal you know, tomato, tomato, which is what I call my vagina, the tomato, tomato. Anyway, moving swiftly on before Hannah's sick, Dr. Amira Bargie, an internal medicine physician at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospitals, that is a mouthful of a job title, said it was the perfect solution for increased uptake and accuracy of STI testing. She said it would give the user their ownership back, which historically has been known to be quite a lonely and very personal struggle for some to overcome. Milanova, just to remind you, she's the founder of Day, said, We've gathered a significant amount of data from our diagnostic tampon over the past few months. I mean, that does also sound like an insult you'd call someone who works in your office. Stop being such a diagnostic tampon. (laughs) and I will be using that going forward. Anyway, back to... I'm amazed she said that in that quote. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible what they come out with when we're quoting them on this podcast, isn't it? (laughs) Back to Milanova. She said, we observed a 1% test failure rate due to insufficient sample collection compared with the 10% and more recorded with the swab. We are also able to reduce sample collection errors significantly, making this an ideal approach for at-home sample collection as part of our strategic initiative to reduce patient wait times and improve access to care. We are mindful of the concerns related to over-treatment and antibiotic resistance. That's why our clinical protocols include education about restoring a healthy vaginal, vaginal, tomato, tomato microbiome. Again, incredible that she said that. As the first key (laughs) measure to reducing, ooh, oh, Hannah, what's that? Urea Urea plasma. Urea plasma, okay. Urea plasma and mycoplasma loads. Studies show that under healthy vaginal, vaginal microbiome conditions and the absence of bacterial vaginosis-related bacteria, urea plasma can reduce on its own. Treatment is only recommended in the presence of high bacterial load and absence of other infections or history of unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss. Basically, I've not really done milling over justice there because that, that was a lot of technical terms that I'm not really aware of because I I don't know. I feel like I was a bit of a diagnostic tampon reading that out. But basically, they're aware that there's some things that could go wrong and they're on it, which is great news.
2: The words vaginal microbiome, I, I don't know, but I keep seeing the Eden Project in my
0: head. <laughs> Interesting, because I just keep seeing The Last of Us because there was also talk of mycoplasma. And myco is mushrooms, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Fungi, I should say. Yeah. Wow.
2: But I mean, I think it's all positive. I mean, I didn't understand much of it, Mickey, but yeah, round of applause for her.
0: I think the only thing I could have done to make that better is do it in my rubbish French accent, so apologies to the listeners. I did try. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by author, broadcaster, classicist, and officially my most interviewed Natalie, Natalie Haynes. Yes.
4: Finally. I just had to kill the other nine and here I am still standing. We did say we
0: wouldn't talk about that on the podcast. Bye Portman. See you, (laughs) Dorma. So Natalie, you keep publishing excellent books and we're going to keep getting you on the podcast. No pressure. Thanks. Your latest deep dive into Greek mythology is called Divine Might and is about women, monsters, goddesses. But before we talk about goddesses, can you tell me how your average woman was seen and treated in ancient Greece?
4: Well, it depends where in ancient Greece and when in ancient Greece. Quite big, isn't it? Yeah, it's about 2,000 years long, ancient Greece, from the earliest bit to the latest bit. Yeah, as far as we are from Julius Caesar, uh, which is really saying something when you think of it in those terms. But yeah, in, say, 5th century Athens, which is where all our tragedies and comedies come from, for example, depending on how much money you had, you had an increasing amount of revenue, a decreasing amount of freedom. So if you were a poor woman obviously that excludes slaves who have no freedom, irrespective of gender. It was, I, I would guess, statistically likely to be worse to be a female slave than a male slave, and I can't prove it. But uh, that's usually how things seem to work yeah. out uh, around the world. There are, of course, more slaves in the world now than there were in the ancient world, more population too. But if you were a reasonably not wealthy person you might as a woman be married to a man and both work you might both you know run a vegetable stall in the market or whatever but the richer you became the more cloistered your life was so if you were the wife of a relatively high-ranking official like somebody who is a general in the Athenians are always at war pretty well then you would be confined to women's quarters you would probably see in terms of men your husband father Brother and son, and that would very likely be it. Otherwise, you'd always be accompanied by other women. You'd always be essentially chaperones. So you'd have this totally cloistered existence. By the time, if we um, scan south a little and go down to Sparta, which is only recorded for us by writers from Athens, by non-Spartan writers. Um, so they've got their own axes to grind, and you have to bear that in mind. There's no such thing as a as an unbiased source. But there they have what we would think of as a lot more bodily freedom insofar as they have very weird kind of weird to us communal upbringing of children so you look after a baby until it's sort of seven-ish and then they're taken from you and they're all brought up together and sort of you know i think this is why posh men used to have such a, a sort of hard-on for this in the 20th century because it's basically it sounds like boarding school eh? <laughs> yeah. so then the women are sort of you know have a bit more freedom and so they have a lot more physical freedom they do exercise they do it outdoors i mean these things sound really minor but if you live in a kind of totally cloistered existence, then being allowed to just go outside for running and jumping sounds pretty nice. It does huh? sound nice, yeah. If you were Greek but not Athenian and you moved to Athens, you might go there. Well, if you are a man, you might go there as an intellectual, a sophist, a philosopher trying to make ends meet. If you're a woman, you might go as a courtesan. Um, those are the examples that we tend to get. So that would be somebody who sells perhaps not sex for money, but sells high-end conversation and perhaps also sex for, if not money, then certainly influence and probably also money. That seems like a more desirable life to us. If you look at Plato's symposium, where the guys all get to sort of sit around having wine and philosophical chat, you think, oh yeah, being part of that kind of conversation sounds more fun than being toistered. But interestingly, in terms of lawsuits, which are a good way of telling how the real world works as opposed to how our idea of it works, Uh, We don't have any examples of Athenian women pretending to be born elsewhere in Greece so they can have a freer life, like a a courtesan or hetaira is the word in Greek. We do have examples of women born elsewhere in Greece trying to pass themselves off as Athenian citizen women so they could have less freedom as we would perceive it. The difference, of course, is that your children would then be Athenian citizens. It's not like now where you know, I didn't grow up in London, but I moved to London, so now I can vote in London elections for the Athenians. Unless you were born and raised in Athens, you were never going to be an Athenian citizen.
0: So, so seen very much as separate to the rest of, of Greece and the islands and stuff then.
4: Yeah, there's no such thing as Greece at the time. The word Greece comes from a later Roman word, Grykia. So the Greeks saw themselves as Hellenes. Greece, of course, still calls itself Hellas. It's only us to call it Greece. Uh, They saw themselves as being Hellenes if they were defining themselves in opposition to, for example, the Persians, so like non-Greeks. But generally, they thought of themselves as residents of a city-state. So Athenians were Athenians, Spartans were Spartans, Corinthians were Corinthians. So you were much more likely to claim your local city-state as your point of identity rather than your nation. Um, That's a a later way of looking at things. Oh, it's like Manchester and Liverpool. There you go, you see. Two city-states alike in Dignity. Um, (laughs) Keeping themselves going.
0: How does all of that regarding these women translate to the female deities?
4: Well, that is an excellent question, and one I'm not sure I can answer, which is disappointing given how many books I've written on these subjects. (laughs) Come on, Natalie. Well, it's a strange puzzle, really, that what we have is these really powerful goddesses who are worshipped in a time of an incredibly restrictive patriarchal society. Uh So as a woman in 5th century Athens, for example, you would have no say whatsoever in who you married. You know, this would be entirely decided by your father, maybe by your brother if your father had died relatively young, but you wouldn't get a say in it. We're told in our sources that Spartan women had a bit more freedom in who they said yes or no to, but as an Athenian woman, you'd have absolutely no say in this at all. And yet the goddesses that they worshipped, and certainly the major Olympian goddesses, well, I guess there are six, right? So there's Hera, queen of the gods. There's Aphrodite, goddess of love and sex. And Athene, goddess of strategic warfare, defensive war, crafts and intelligence. Demeter, the goddess of the harvest. Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. And Artemis, who is the goddess of the hunt. And of those big six, Fully three of them reject marriage Hello? fully three of them just don't get involved in any kind of sexual relationship at all athene artemis hestia and i can never quite work out whether the idea is that they're so different from mortal women that it's fine therefore in fact if anything this highlights how different they are because they don't get married and of course all the mortal women would have to get married or whether it's a sort of you know a a reasonably belated acceptance that maybe the candidates for marriage on Matalus are really terrible they're awful (laughs) so yeah is it because they are they're like us or because they're unlike us and the honest answer is I'm not I'm not completely sure Hestia particularly is fascinating because she we're told in the Homeric hymn she is one of the three goddesses along with Athena and Artemis that Aphrodite can't deceive or cajole i.e. she rejects sex with anyone not just men but anyone and then we're told that she rejects marriage with both Poseidon and Apollo. So Aphrodite, Poseidon, and Apollo, that super three upper-thin-skinned egomaniacs <laughs> that Hestia basically says no to. And somehow she doesn't fall out with any of them, which is unheard of. You know, generally, even quite a mild tip between two gods will play out with terrible mortal consequences yep. See the Trojan War pattern. And the weirdest thing is that then she gets involved in what's basically a sort of cosy flat share, a platonic flat share with the god Hermes. And they are sort of opposites. She is the goddess of the hearth, so she's always still at the centre of the house. She is the personification of the hearth and the household and the people who, who make your house your home. They're all represented by Hestia. And Hermes can go everywhere. You know, he's the opposite of that. He's always in motion. He goes. He can move between the gods and the mortals. He can move between mortal and the underworld, mm-hmm. you know, so he's got, he's always moving, and she's always still, and they basically have a, a cosy flat chair, and there's no suggestion of anything sexual going on between them at all, ever. I can't think of a single other example anywhere in Greek myth, in fact, I struggle to think of another example anywhere in myth, All stop, yeah, of a man and a woman who live together with no sexual subtext, just because they presumably like hanging out together. It's just bonkers. It's like, when is this? Yeah, this is thousands of years old. This is It feels like such a modern story. It's like, did you accidentally write me will and grace? What is going on here? But there <laughs> it is.
0: So Hestia totally became my new favourite spinster. i sure. She is surely queen of the spinsters, I think, and every woman taken for granted should worship her. But she kind of disappeared. She was your trickier one to research,
4: right? It was so hard to research because she was, you know, she is one of the big hitters, she is the sister to Hera, and Demeter, to Zeus, to Hades and Poseidon. So these six three gods, three goddesses, are really our kind of first big name residents of Mount Olympus. <laughs> so she's right up there, but she doesn't have much of a role in, in some of the big stories. They might, might not be particularly well known to us, but things like the Gigantomachy, the battle twin gods and the giants, a previous generation of gods. It was a hugely popular subject for ancient artists, in particular sculptors, to depict. And she's never involved in that because she's at home. You know, she's keeping the home fires burning, mm-hmm. literally. And so perhaps it's in part because she doesn't get involved in many of the kind of big stories that we're expecting. But we're told in her Homeric hymn that she has a home in, in every mortal home and the home of every immortal god, i.e. every house and every temple has a shrine to Hestia. She takes the first and last portion of every single sacrifice. So when you sacrifice to any god, the first bit goes to Hestia and the last bit goes to Hestia. She's absolutely omnipresent. Right? When the Greeks wanted to say, let's start at the beginning, they said, Let's start with Hestia. Let's begin at Hestia. So she is linguistically central as the very first wow. thing that you do before anything else. And then The Romans are crazy about her. They call her Vesta. They rename uh, Greek gods and give them slightly different identities. But there are shrines to Vesta that have been found dating back at least as far as the 4th, I think, sometimes even as far as the 6th century BC. So this is even before 5th century Athens in Italy um, to the goddess Vesta. And the Vestal Virgins are perhaps the most famous priestesses to come to our attention in ancient Rome. And obviously they keep the sacred flame of Rome burning. So not only is Hestia slash Vesta responsible for the fire in your home, the thing that makes it warm, the thing that makes you able to cook, she's responsible for the fire in every temple. Again, when you burn offerings, as the Greeks and Romans do, that's crucial. But she's also responsible for a civic flame, like the Romans have an eternal flame to Vesta which the Vestal virgins are charged with keeping. The punishment for letting it go out, I might add, was both physical and horrific. And the most wonderful thing, I think, about Vesta is that if you go to Pompeii, there are lots and lots of shrines to her, particularly at bakeries, because, of course, they use fire to bake bread. So not only is she the goddess of hearth and of home and of the people who make your house a home, your household, The word Hestia has that metonymic quality, just like the word hearth does here. Yeah. On top of all of that, she's basically the patron goddess of carbs. I just can't... She's amazing. How is she not a household name? How do we not have, (laughs) you know, why aren't we all wearing necklaces with her name? I can't make sense of it.
0: I wondered, because obviously these goddesses have been talked about, recorded, translated and studied by men for so very long and whether that is what has taken its toll.
4: I think in this particular instance, I wonder if the issue is that she is everywhere, that she's in every single temple. The worship of any other god includes the worship to Hestia, and it may not have escaped the notice of rising monotheism, not so much in the first, but in the second and third centuries, see that there was this apparently omnipresent goddess in every sacred space and every home. And I suspect plugging as they were an omnipresent god it probably seemed uh, a bit too close for comfort. And so I imagine she got edited out accordingly.
0: Okay. And what about with the other goddesses? Because what I love is that they they do fall into some what we would class now in our society, traditional gender roles. You know, Aphrodite is all about desire. Demeter makes things grow or not, depending on what's happened to her. Yeah, don't mess with her girl. Absolutely not. Hestia is the heart of the home. Athena is the goddess of war and wisdom. Artemis looks after the Holy Knight. Hera will smite you soon as fucking look at you. She is like, she yep. just cross. She
4: probably will, but you probably did start it or if you didn't start it, her husband started it <laughs> and she's cross either yeah. way. Yeah. So yeah, best, honestly, most sensible thing to do, duck, hide. There's no, there's no <laughs> point arguing with her. There's no point trying to reason with her. She's not here for your arguments, nah.
0: But there's also a big contrast to what we would class as traditional gender roles. And maybe you've covered this with your answers to how the deities reflect actual women of the massive amount of time. But do, do you think they more or less encompass what we consider as traditional gender roles for women?
4: Well, you know, some of, some of both of those things is the short answer. Hera is probably the most representative of her constituency, I guess, <laughs> insofar as she's a married woman and she has power over her household but absolutely limitations on her power everywhere else mm. because she's married to somebody who has much more power namely Zeus. And so she is an absolutely relentless enemy. The sheer quantity of spite that she directs against the Trojans during the Iliad, for example, is absolutely breathtaking. You can really see why people have kind of, you, you sort of need to take a step back sometimes. You're like, God, oh, she's so angry. She'll Accept anybody, you know, terrible things happen to anyone if she can just get what she wants, which is everyone to die. um And it's like, oh, okay. But here's the thing we underestimate the fact that she has found herself stuck in a relationship with somebody who is absolutely, repeatedly, and systematically unfaithful to her. She has status which is purely dependent on him, right? Zeus is married to other people before Hera. Can you name any of them? No. Do you know why? Because it doesn't last. So she knows her status is dependent on him staying interested in her when they meet, I might add. We're told in uh, one poem that he hungers for her for 300 years. So they obviously ab add an extremely intense sexual relationship. But by the time we get to the Iliad, she's having to kind of plot and scheme in order, Dolifranusa, Homer calls her, she's got uh, tricks in her mind, in order to get his attention, sexual and otherwise, in order to get her own way, which is Greek victory at Troy, And, you know, we could just see that as a typical woman using sex to get what she wants. But that does involve disregarding what it says in the text, which is at one point, her son Hephaestus, the the blacksmith god, says to her, you know, I want what you want. You know, I want to um, encourage the Greeks and and defeat the Trojans. But we can't openly go against what Zeus wants because he'll hurt you. He's done it before. And when I tried to rescue you, he hurt me too. So actually, she is trapped in a relationship with a violent and coercive man, and it can never end because they're both immortal. Yeah. So when you think about it like that, she can be poisonously unpleasant. She is so vile to woman after woman, whom Zeus has accosted, assaulted, raped, seduced, combinations of the above. And yet... I find it hard to to see her as the worst person in this marriage because I very much think she isn't. You only have to look at the size of the temples which once stood to Hera. You can't see the one that was at Samothrace, um, but uh, oh, at Samos, the one the, there. There was a temple there that was three times the size of the Parthenon. Wow! Which is a temple to Athene, obviously. So three. I mean, that's could that just be because you're Scared of her? Maybe. It sound, I don't know. It sounds a little bit more devoted than that, doesn't it? If totally. You look at the ones that are at Paestum in Magna Graecia, or as I think people now call it, Italy. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I'll look that up and check before yeah, the podcast okay, goes. Okay. Yeah. Out. So, Southern Italy, Paestum is not too far. You can get a train from Naples. Then there are two massive temples to Hera there, absolutely gargantuan. Uh, so much so that when um, the site was first considered and interrogated and dug in the 18th century, they were convinced that the temple must be to Poseidon the Greek name for Piston was Poseidonia so it must, you know, this gigantic temple must be to a male god. It's like, well no, actually, as it turns out, once they you know, spent a bit more time looking at the dedications and votive of offerings, on Hera was the answer. In fact, there are two very probably temples to Hera there. And so yeah, the, the Greeks and later the Romans worship Hera, later Juno with a lot of enthusiasm if she's as evil as we're encouraged to see her as so i tend to assume she maybe wasn't
0: i'd like to talk a little bit more about someone who is or more than one who is relentless when it comes to vengeance because i think we should start some sort of petition to bring back the furies
4: oh yeah i fucking love the furies aren't they great aren't they great they're just so and originally they were personifications of vengeance so that was their sole job was just to go around avenging and you say oh man how is that not a gig i can have <laughs> but then gradually they sort of become more distinct and separated out from one another. There's usually three. They have, you know, um more personalities, but they always belong to a, a sort of older generation of gods or goddesses. And so what we see is if you do something wrong to a family member, and this is you know, it's it's really sometimes they protect oaths which you could swear to somebody who wasn't a family member, but generally it's wrong to someone in your family so Orestes for example murders his mother Clytemnestra because she has murdered his father Agamemnon although apparently no one cared except Clytemnestra about the fact that he had murdered their daughter Iphigenia. absolutely um, Orestes apparently that just can't remember that case. oh my like, god what? A, a thousand times he started it he absolutely started it yeah, I mean, I'm sure I told you this before, but killing him in a thousand ships was just the happiest day at the office I've <laughs> ever had. I was just overjoyed. I was like, oh, just, just could do it all over again. Tap, 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 bing, <laughs> every single day. But yeah, so the furies pursue Orestes because he has killed his mother and mm-hmm. there is no, as far as the furies are concerned, you can't just say sorry for that or do community service or, you know, they will chase you to the ends of the earth until you take your own life. That's their... One goal in life they're not always the most efficient pursuers they get really tired we have got loads of vase paintings of them like oh god so do you just just only makes makes me love middle aged women
0: who are just like this is a thing that needs to happen but I am quite sleepy
4: (laughs) I'm going to have to have a quick kip and then I'm going to be right with you you know they don't quit and in the end you know however much they need a rest on the way their pursuit of a is so relentless that he has to have the god Apollo intervene to get him out of their clutches in Delphi, and then Apollo sends into Athens to claim sanctuary from the goddess athene and only then, when he's got the support of both Athene and Apollo, two of the really biggest names in all Greek gods, only then can he try and stand his ground against the Furies and and ask for a trial essentially and and to be to be let off so. You have to really bring in the big guns if you're going to see off the Furies. And even then, there's no guarantee, you know, Athene intervenes on his behalf. Apollo speaks on his behalf, defends him. Athene finds in his favour because uh, she is deeply biased against mothers, uh, unfortunately, for those who'd like her to be a feminist icon. And only then do the Furies, you know, very reluctantly agree that they won't kill him. And, And then, you know, even after all of that, Athene has to sort of, plead with them in a a very dignified way, but nonetheless, for them not to punish the people of Athens because she, as their patron goddess, has made this decision against the Furies' best interest. The argument that she has to make in order to get the Furies away from Orestes is to say, well, he was defending his father, and fathers are the real parents of children. Mothers aren't parents of of children. Can you imagine my face when I was reading this, Natalie? Yeah, they have to twist... I mean, not just morality, but biology in order (laughs) to to beat the Furies, The Furies are really absolute. You know, they might not be very kind of sensitive to reason, but they're also in this instance, not wrong. You know,
0: in Divine Might, this really fascinated me, that it's one of the quirks of Greek mythology, that artwork and texts kind of routinely contradict each other.
4: Oh, oh, yeah. How
0: do you piece together a coherent (laughs) narrative?
4: Well, my advice is that you don't only really start thinking about that when you're, you know, a couple of chapters into a book. <laughs> Certainly that's not what I would do.
0: Of course. Um, I can tell that doesn't come from personal experience.
4: <laughs> it was all fine. Don't worry, everyone. Yeah, no, there's this kind of telescoping of time that you get in artworks in particular where you you can see a whole sort of lifetime's worth of things all in a single space. So it is really, really confusing sometimes. You know, we always think of Theseus as sort of young hero depending on one's perspective. I think of him obviously is a serial killer of women, but most people would think of him as a young hero who kills the Minotaur. But, you know, we tend to gloss over the bit where in his 50s, count that 50s, he kidnaps Helen of Sparta, she'll become eventually Helen of Troy when she's aged either 7 or 10 because he wants the daughter of Zeus to be his bride. So, you know, the, the young hero becomes a deeply unpleasant mid-years paedophile um and you know people just that's
0: that's such a phrase welcome
4: (laughs) thanks um so i i'm sorry that we always choose to focus on the parts of stories where men are heroic and women are either victims or monstrous because it's really not clear to me that we've fully accepted what makes someone a monster
0: absolutely i think that goes back to what i said about the fact that this until relatively recently has been the classics have been a man's world and they're the ones who've looked at these stories and sort of gone oh this is a nice pick and mix that makes us look great or heroic. What do you think modern women can take from these ancient goddesses if anything?
4: Well what I think we get is the sense that it's actually okay for women to be at the centre of a story. They're not girlfriends, wives waving off their husbands who go off to have an adventure while they stay at home which isn't to you know suggest you couldn't have adventures at home. You can of course but that that centering of stories on men doing things and women waiting for them. It was so ubiquitous in the 1990s. You know, men in films went off and had adventures. Women, you know, said, oh, but be careful. And that that was their sole job. Occasionally they got decapitated and their head was delivered to him in a box. That was basically the only variant on a theme. And I think it is really important to go back and remember that there are plenty of stories, actually, and there always were, where women are the centre of the narrative. And the story of Demeter and Persephone is just such a one from the Homeric hymn to Demeter. The stories, you know, that center around Aphrodite, around Athene, the Furies, you know, these are stories that have women absolutely at their core. And it's just, it's so irritating to me that there's this, you know, even a lip service paid to a belief that men are kind of, you know, where the story usually is or where the action has to be. It's like, if you make that choice, sure, but you don't have to. I love the, rise in kind of strong female characters uh, that we've seen in film and telly and books over the last couple of decades but I kind of love more the way that these Greek goddesses allow you don't have to be a strong female character and you might be monstrous in the case of Hera, (laughs) you might be terrifying in the case of Artemis you might be, you know, incredibly saucy and gorgeous and having an affair um, play away from home like Aphrodite you know you might be toxically ungenerous and monomaniacal like Athene. And all of those things are fine. I feel like I'm always trying to find new ways of saying, women are half the world. We're probably going to be as complicated as the other half of the world. Yeah. Divine
0: Might is published by Picador and out now. Is there any more Natalie
4: Haynes stands up for the classics in The Offing? It will be with you on the 18th, I think, of November, maybe the 19th of November, so really soon that's series nine and i'll be recording series 10 early next year and where can people find you to
0: you know say that they are now also big fans of the furies and hestiot
4: oh you can find me everywhere you can hunt for me on socials i'm official N haynes on whatever we're currently calling uh twitter and uh <laughs> and me, haynes stand-up classicist elsewhere you can find the radio show on bbc sounds of course you can buy the books and we will save it at local bookshop. And you can find me with you next time I've written the book, is my guess? Absolutely, You've got to get my Natalie quota in.
2: Hello, Hannah here. I am absolutely delighted to be able to say welcome to Standard Issue, Angelina Mahindra. Thank you so much for being here.
3: Thanks for having me, Hannah.
2: Series two of The Lazarus Project about to hit our screens which I am very excited by. I put this on my list of some of the best of last year's TV. And although George is the main character, Archie, your character, is absolutely the hero of this for me. Do
3: you feel that? Is it nice to be back in her shoes? How do you feel about her? I absolutely love Archie. She is one of the most badass and cool women I've ever had the delight of playing. She's the kind of woman that I'd like as a mate and so stepping back into her shoes again was nothing but joy, pure, pure joy. And the second season of a show, you get to like steep yourself a bit further into their shoes mm. and it sort of starts to feel a bit more second nature. So you can have a bit more fun, I think.
2: Yeah. She also has some very nice shoes. It's worth saying, nice to be back. Yeah.
3: <laughs> she does.
2: <laughs> Nice to be back in those. I think if I was going to start an agency and I was going in to poach some members of staff, Archie and Shiv, they would be the two I would take. The rest of them, <laughs> the rest of them, I don't strictly trust them. But Archie, she's just so solid. Now, there's some excellent existential musing can be done in this, but it's in the Lazarus Project. But there's also a lot of fun and there's a lot of action. Action is fun to watch. Is it fun to make? Have you had to do oh some my training? God.
3: It is so fun to make. I'm not sure if it fits for everyone, but I love it. And I discovered that it, like, quite recently, just how much I love a fight sequence or some weapons. <laughs> um, the first time I held a gun, which was the beginning of shooting season one, my knees were knocking together so hard you could hear them. Just being with a sort of like a, a weapon mm. was terrifying. But after 10 minutes of gun training, I didn't want to give it back. <laughs> um, there's something quite, obviously, it's make-believe and yeah. that means it's a lot more there's a fun element to it but um it made me feel super badass and fighting also feels because again it's make-believe it's not it's not real violence it's almost like a dance a choreographed dance basically um and it's it's a lot it's a lot of fun i love that stuff
2: now obviously papa essie do you're working with him he is god he's such an enormous talent i saw him at, at the theater Um, Last year, he was in uh, a Carol Churchill with uh, Lenny James. Oh, a
3: number. Yeah.
2: And now Lenny James is an amazing talent, but he looked like he could afford to be scared a bit because (laughs) Mavarezian was so great. You two have really, really good chemistry. And I I watched a preview. Quite often when we get previews to review or for this sort of thing, they aren't quite finished. And there's a scene with you and George in a pub and your audio is on it, but Papa Esiado's audio isn't on it. His audio <laughs> is coming up as subtitles. <laughs> and it kind of looks like Archie can read his mind. And do <laughs> you know what? So it really wow. works. It actually really works. The way you two work together, I thought, do you know what? I could almost believe that Archie could read George's mind because she's so on it.
3: Thank you so much. He's amazing to work opposite. I mean, he's incredibly talented, as you said, but he's also just one of the most charming, funny and charismatic people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So it is just so easy. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of great people in this. Tom Burke's doing some wonderful. Yeah, amazing. Some one. In fact, he has a really brilliant line in this first episode where he says to someone, I didn't come all this way just to hide in a cupboard. <laughs> Have you ever watched Orphan Black at all? No, I
3: haven't. No, no, why?
2: Because it reminds me, in a lot of ways, the Lazarus Project kind of reminds me of Orphan Black in that they're both, Written by men, and I don 't know that those men set out to write something feminist, however, they seem to have written something feminist by accident almost because whenever the world is really bad for everybody, it somehow always manages to be worse for women, and that is really clear in the Lazarus Project when everybody suffers, the women suffer the worst i mean janet 's plotline is the the yeah. obvious in that and Archie suffers an enormous loss and just gets on with it. George suffers an enormous loss and does not accept it. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Yeah. He says something really clear about the way that women are. And like I say, I don't know that Joe Barton set out to write something that was really feminist, but he seems to have. And I wondered how you, how you felt about the way women are generally represented and then how they are represented in this.
3: Well, I feel like the women across the board sometimes you're lucky and you get one really good female character but all the women in this seem really well-rounded and just brilliant women that you feel like you know and women who deal with pain in a very well especially with Archie and I think with Wes even just in a very um humorous sort of light way that yeah. feels honest to yeah. me I don't know
2: yeah they just get on with it which is as a rule what women tend to do not that we don't grieve not that we don't care but that we just get up the next day because that's the
3: world doesn't stop we just crack on Exactly, yeah, that. i know exactly whereas, what you
2: mean whereas this whole problem all of the problems that are happening now in the lazarus projects is because george basically won't accept that something's happened he has to try and change yeah,
3: it you're so very... right <laughs> i hadn't seen it that way but you're spot on everyone else has dealt with loss and just carries on and yeah. he's like no i'm not dealing with this not yeah. having a a day without my loved one i'm i'm gonna do something crazy
2: yeah <laughs> Now Archie's obviously brilliant in this I in she's, she's she's good she's good at everything but as underlying that she the skill for anyone who doesn't who doesn't watch let me explain the skill that they have some people develop it naturally and some people are sort of selected as Archie was and given this skill sort of artificially Archie's sort of hung up on that somehow that she she didn't develop this naturally she's better than all of them but she isn't she doesn't have the the natural talent therefore she's had to work harder to prove that she's as good as everybody else and I wondered you know as a woman in the industry that you work in does does that shine with you
3: massively also as a woman of colour you've got another massive hurdle there but yeah I feel that in spades You just, you can't just be good. You have to be, you have to strive to be exceptional to stand out as a woman. And yeah, doubly so as a woman of colour. Yeah, you're right. It's nice that that's reflected in a character in a show in a way. Yeah. So it's a very accurate observation um, from Joan.
2: It is incredibly, incredibly well written this. Now you're currently stuck. This isn't a spoiler because this was the end of the last series. You're stuck in a three-week loop. I've got to say... She's dealing with it better than anybody else. Her makeup is still immaculate. She's doing great. Everyone <laughs> else is great. Everybody else is losing their mind. I would imagine she smells wonderful. She's just getting on with what she's got to get on with. If you were going to be stuck in a three-week loop of your life, is there a period that you think that you would choose?
3: Yeah, I think the first three weeks of my life in moving to London. I'm from Nottingham, and I moved to London in 2012, in March 2012, uh, early March 2012. And there was there was a period of the Olympics in London mm. where. Externally it felt like we were living in quite a, a great, positive, inclusive, fun time. But internally I was just having an absolute blast living in London and and discovering myself and um feeling like a tiny fish in a massive pond and getting lost. I'd love to go back there. Those few weeks were pretty world.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Nottingham's a really interesting place, I think. So many people come from Nottingham, you know, actresses, comedians, filmmakers, dozens of people. Does Nottingham feel like a really artsy place when you're growing up?
3: I don't know, actually, but I do know what you mean. I trained at a place called Television Workshop, where many of the amazing talent that comes from Nottingham did train, but there's loads of people who've like slipped the net and Aren't associated with the Television Workshop, who have also gone on to do amazing things, and are from Nottingham. But outside of the workshop, I don't, I don't know that it felt like a really artsy city. So I'm always a bit like, wow, I'm amazed when people have found another route in because yeah. for me that was a massive springboard in my life. Mm. Um, There's a bit of a theatre scene in Nottingham, but not massive. So I wonder. I wonder what's going on. There must be something in the water.
2: Yeah. One of my friends' kids just went up to university in Nottingham. Ah, the uni there's great. Yeah. Have you
3: spent a lot of time there then?
2: I had a couple of friends who live there. Uh they no longer live there. And apparently a lot of jazz. I'm not really into jazz, but I heard it was a really jazzy city as well.
3: I didn't know that. I'm gonna go back now and see you <laughs> jazz part.
2: Are your family still <laughs> up there? Yeah,
3: yeah, my family still live there. I've got loads of mates that are still there. I spend a couple of weeks every Christmas um going there. But you sort of go to the same old haunts of a city. Yeah. You know, when. You're new to a city, I feel like I make more effort to get to know it. Whereas if I'm going back to my home city, I just go back to my old haunts. So yeah. I'm going to check out the jazz scene. Yeah.
2: Thanks. You're welcome. Now, I was looking through your back catalogue to see what else I was going to ask you about. I know everyone always seems to ask you about a um, Bodyguard. You have been in a number of really what I would describe as big TV. You know, The Bodyguard being a, an example. Vigil, you were in as well. Obviously, you've got connections to Doctor Who. It's all very sort of, sort of sci-fi, sort of thriller, big, big TV. And I wondered... Do you ever get a hankering to make a bit of smaller TV, or perhaps maybe comedy that's entirely different to what you've? What oh, you've totally! Done? I was thinking
3: that recently. Actually, I had an amazing time on a project called The Red King, and I was playing um, the lead police officer, and it was incredible, and I loved it. Actually, it was the time of my life. But I, I sat back and I thought, yeah, it would actually be lovely to do because there's a bit of comedy, tiny bit of comedy in it. Um, I was thinking it would be really lovely to do some some comedy and yeah. something lighter. A rom-com would be amazing. You kind of end up in telly going down a certain road and then unless you make a real effort, I find, to change paths, you can kind of keep going along that journey. So yeah. I I'd love to have a bit more levity and then to to play around with some other, some other tones, definitely.
2: Because you were also in with Vicky Pepperdine um, Rob Lowe, what was that called? Wild Bill. And I, I, interviewed, Wild Bill. I interviewed Vicky Pepperdine recently. God, what a fun woman she is. And we yeah. were talking about that and how she was just saying it was just, Rob Lowe's in this thing and we're in Lincoln. This is mad. This is really fun. <laughs> she said it was just bonkers and really fun and she really enjoyed it, yeah.
3: Yeah, I had a blast making that, but it did feel like too crazy, like at either sides of a sort of spectrum. You're in Lincoln and not a lot of stuff gets filmed there. Yeah. And you've got Rob Lowe from America, who's completely a fish out of water. He was brilliant, actually. It was a really, it was a really fun show that to make. I bet. Have
2: you got anything else on the horizon that you can talk to us about? Is everything under wraps? Have you got something else
3: coming? I don't know when it's coming out, but I recently wrapped filming The Red King, which is a show set in Wales. It's a brilliant. The, t- the tone of that is incredible. It's sort of similar in terms of it, it's a tone that you. It's very unique in that it's a bit of comedy, but it's also a crime drama. Um, there's a horror element that goes through it. I'm really excited about that, but we've only just wrapped, so it's a little while off yeah. coming out.
2: So, yeah, you can't talk about that. What you can tell us is what Archie has coming for her this series.
3: So, I mean, I guess what I can say is we're stuck in an infinite three-week time loop, <laughs> and it's up to The Lazarus Project to fix this before... Um, a total wipeout of humanity. Archie feels very different this season in that, and I think I can say this, in that George and what he did in season one and the way he dealt with his loss has made her question the way that she dealt with her loss. And uh, it's made her look at the Lazarus Project as an organisation with a very different perspective. I feel like she feels a little bit, a little bit more carefree this season. That's and interesting. I guess, you know, when you meet people in life and their outlook on life makes you... Ch- it challenges the way you see the world and the decisions that you've made and the things that you thought were the right way to live. Mm. I think George has been quite a wonderful catalyst in Archie's entire outlook. So, yeah. Because
2: well, she's definitely a believer, isn't she? She she yes. she believes Devout. that she is doing the right thing. And Absolutely. yeah, if those people ever snap, then... Then we're all fucked. And what we? happens. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Actually, this has been absolutely delightful. I am so glad that this is back on the telly and it was absolutely lovely to speak to you. Thank you ever so much for your time.
3: Thanks so much.
1: You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the Blocks, that time of the week where we take down the patriarchy with a ruthless sliding tackle as we discuss all things women's sport. So look, I promised you a Mary Erbs loving and a Mary Erbs loving you shall have. But first of all, let's talk about the New York Marathon and some bullshit I saw on the old socials last week. So a GP from Flint, Gail Redman was forced to pull out of the New York Marathon after she was told by organisers that she couldn't wear a vest carrying supplies for her stoma as well as water. For those of you who don't know, a stoma is a surgically made hole in the abdomen which allows waste to leave the body into a collection bag. Gail has one because of various surgeries for endometriosis. She was registered as a disabled competitor for the last six months and she sent pictures of her vest to the organisers. One of the features of it is that it has a pouch for a 1.5 litre water bag on the back because her condition makes her more susceptible to dehydration. The bag means that she can drink continuously so as to avoid that. The organisers said, however, that the vest does not adhere to rules set by the police. She can have a waist belt, they said, but, you know, she can't because of her stoma. They said she could use a specific type of backpack or a vest with a pouch in the front, except she can't because neither allows adequate room for her stoma supplies. The race organisers said that they had gone, and I quote, above and beyond to help go and that it is, again, I quote, unfortunate that her request didn't align with local law enforcement restrictions, and she has chosen not to join us this year, which is about as pass ag a response as it gets. I appreciate that there are some security concerns, but it feels a bit odd that you could have a pouch on your front, but not your back, literally at the cost of having to withdraw. Clearly, Gail is not the only person in the world with a stoma, so it's not a terribly inclusive policy. But there you have it. OK, go on then. Let's have some good news. What an excellent week it has been for England goalkeeper Mary Earps. As the Ballon d'Or winners were announced last week during the Women's Nations League. So basically no one who was nominated could actually attend on the women's side. Aitana uh, Bonmati of Spain took the top prize. But Mary Earps came fifth, which is quite remarkable for a goalkeeper. In fact, it is the highest ever finish for a goalkeeper in the Ballon d'Or rankings. Look, being a goalkeeper is not sexy, right? If you've ever played football as a child, you'll remember the cold, dismal misery of standing betwixt jumpers being pelted by footballs and there's no glory in it. Certainly Nike didn't think so when they couldn't be asked to market a Mary Earp's replica kit for the Summer's World Cup. There's far less praise for a clean sheet than a hat trick, but clean sheets are important. I actually think my daughter is going to be a goalkeeper and I will back it. So anyway, I fucking love the vindication of Mary Alexandra Earp's aka this year's World Cup Golden Glove winner, this year's England Player of the Year, and now also this year's Sunday Times Sportswomen of the Year, as was announced last week. Obviously, the Lionesses were Team of the Year as well. I love it. When are the spotty nominations out? She will be on that list. I'm absolutely sure of it. Of course she won't win because men, but I will delight in seeing her finish in the top three. It's got to happen. That is all for me this week. I will be back next time with more women's sport. Oh, and there is sport for you in this week's chops as well, I should say, as I chat to QI Elf and co-author of Everything to Play for, the QI Book of Sports, Anna Tashinsky. Hit subscribe now if you've not done it already because she was ace and my God, did I learn a thing or two about the modern pentathlon.
2: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which lolla minute film did we watch this week? <laughs> ah,
1: this week we watched 1993's The Piano, an Oscar fest starring Holly Hunter, Sam Neill, Harvey Keitel and a very young Anna Paquin, who won an Oscar for her performance aged just 11. Fun fact, she was up against her co-star Hunter in that category for her role in The Firm. It was written and directed by Jane Campion, who won the first of her two Oscars for the screenplay and Holly Hunter did not go away empty-handed either, winning the award for Best Actress that year. But that's not all. It was actually nominated for eight Oscars in total and also took home the Palme d'Or at Cannes, with Campion becoming the first woman and the first New Zealander to achieve this. Latterly, in a BBC poll of film experts in 2019, it was ranked the best film by a woman director ever oh. maybe bear in mind that uh, lost in translation came fifth in that poll mind you oh <laughs> <laughs> well, now you may be angry as well as sad jen <laughs> i think we might possibly get angrier over the course of this but anyway we'll see it has some lovely piano music in it by michael nyman which you'll have heard on a lloyd's tsb advert and will now always haunt my dreams oh. the score was not nominated for an oscar though which is kind of surprising
2: The Fugitive score, however,
1: was. (laughs) Didn't win.
2: I wonder maybe if it's because the score is largely just the one song played (laughs) slightly differently all the way through it. Beautiful song, though, it is.
1: It was nominated for lots of other awards that year, though, the the score, just not an Oscar. A very competitive year in the uh, original score category, apparently. Anyway, on the plot, Campion said that she'd drawn inspiration from the African Queen and Wuthering Heights. I haven't read the former. The latter, I'm a little bit confused by, it unless we're talking about shit, weather and horrible men, but maybe we'll come back to both of those points. And so to the plots: Ada McGrath is a Scottish woman sometime in the mid-1800s who has a daughter, Flora, and doesn't speak. She's not spoken since the age of six. By choice, we're told by Ada, who narrates the film, and that she doesn't really know why. Perhaps she's not considered, like, the best catch by mid-1800 standards, and her dad ships her off to New Zealand to marry a settler, Alistair Stewart, who he sold her to. Thanks, Dad. Maybe she doesn't want to talk, and maybe she does have a kid, but she is a dab hand, no pun intended, at the piano. And among the possessions she lands with on the shores of New Zealand is a handcrafted piano. Sad times when Alistair rocks up with a Maori crew and swit swoo, George Baines, a retired sailor who lives next door sort of loosely because next door is a little way (laughs) away because, you know, New Zealand. In the next swamp along. Yeah, in the next swamp along. Then, because he tells us us babes, we don't have enough dudes to carry that old thing. It'll have to stay here on the beach. Ada's luck is in when Switzwoo George Baines catches her playing the thing down on the beach a few days later and apparently it does quite the thing to his ding dong because he gives Alistair a load of land in exchange for the piano and lessons from his missus on how to play it. Sure thing, says an unwitting Alistair. Turns out George's motivations aren't entirely honourable and actually he wants to have a wank while he listens to Ada playing it.
0: I saw Harvey Keitel's Willie. Again, he's always getting that Is out. he? Mm. You've got to ask him to stop coming round your house, Donna. <laughs> <haven't I? laughs>
1: anyway, yeah. we've all done it. So he offers to we'll sell back her piano <laughs> a key at a time if she agrees to various smutty activities coercing her into a sexual relationship with him yep and we are invited
0: to think he's all right actually fiercely romantic I think is you know what really? we're being
1: sold Jen well Mick I mean it turns out he is all right actually and before you know it Ada is voluntarily doing the thing with him reinforcing the message that women just really want to be coerced into sex am I right A very confusing 20 minutes ensues as Ada is sort of, I don't know, raped by Alistair and then she's suddenly just DTF apparently but fuck a duck. Alistair's found out about her infidelity and in one of the most harrowing five minutes of film I've ever seen, he chops her finger off with an axe in front of her young child so that she can't play the piano anymore and sends the finger off to George Baines. Then he sexually assaults her again as she lies convalescing. It's a lot. Don't let your dad choose your husband. (laughs) don't do it don't do it one of many many lessons this (laughs) film
2: has to tell us
0: not even in the top 10 of lessons is it hannah
1: no no anyway alistair feels a bit bad about it and decides that she can go off with george after all he's just relieved that she didn't speak to him either because you know if he can't have her words etc they go and live somewhere else and even the happy ending manages somehow to be absolutely miserable at the end fun fact Campion said in a 2013 interview that she actually wanted the ending to be more miserable, saying that it would have been more real if Ada had actually died. I mean, she's probably right, but um, I'm I'm glad she didn't go that way. Now, I thought I had seen this before. I certainly remember the hype about it at the time. But when I watched it, I didn't remember any of it. So I'm not sure if I simply repressed the memory of it or if (laughs) i did not actually watched it. What I will say is, wowzers! I do not recommend watching it before bedtime on a Sunday night while experiencing crippling anxiety. It's just not the one for that vibe. Had any of you watched it before and did you have any memory of the past trauma? No, I haven't seen it before. Mick? No, I have not seen it before
0: either, but I kind of understand where you're coming from, if indeed you hadn't seen it, rather than, you know, just repress the trauma. In that the images from it, the cinematography felt kind of familiar. I think yeah. that that picture of the piano on the beach and the, the music was everywhere at the time. So, yeah, mm. I felt like I'd absorbed a little bit of that. And the sort of, like, greyness of it. Muted. Yeah. Muted colours, yeah. I think I'd have remembered those terrible Scottish
1: accents,
2: though, if I'd seen it before. I mean, that was
1: one of the first things I wanted to talk about.
2: <laughs> what was interesting, though, was I remember seeing pictures of Harvey Keitel in it, but I didn't realise that he had tattoos on his face, which leads me to think I must have just thought he had one of those really lined faces. <laughs> yeah. Like when I saw the photos, I must have just thought it was some sort of, yeah, that shuttlecock look some men's heads have.
1: I remember the tattoos on his face. Don't
0: remember as Willie. I mean, we're all looking in different places at different times, I think. I'm <laughs> glad I didn't see it on the big screen, is what I'm saying. <laughs>
1: so one of the critics, one of the people who reviewed at the time, Leonard Moulton said the film showed the tragedy and triumph erotic passion can bring to one's daily life. Is this a good place to start? <laughs> I mean, what's the definition of erotic
0: he's using there? And indeed passion and indeed daily and indeed life.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I said to my mum as we watched, it, I said, I do not remember all of the all of the sexual assault in this. Like, this is really rapey, and I don't remember any of it. And she was like, Neither do I. And um I wondered if that was just because thirty years ago
0: was that all right? Thirty years ago, it's not obviously you have to take into account. It's not just thirty years ago. Obviously, that's when the film came out and mm. when it was made, but it's set in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, so. Ada and Baines, I think, is very, very interesting. She starts with so little agency when she lands on those shores. And even though she goes into this contract in inverted commas with him, she does do it. He says, This is what I want to do. Do you want to? He poses it as a question. And she could say, You can have my piano. But the piano means so much to her that she says, Okay. And then obviously, it's really, really uncomfortable. But I understand why she might have gone into that contract. What kind of fucked me over is that she then falls in love with him. And yeah. I was like, oh, God, this old narrative. And coming from a woman, it just sort of stings more, if I'm honest.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly yeah. it. Because you're kind of like, she does make the choice to do it. But then, like, he knows how much that means to her. And she uh-huh. doesn't have a lot in her life, to be fair. So that does give him, like, quite a lot of power over her in that situation. So, yeah, she does go into it willingly and she is like, you know, she is like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do this, but I'm doing it for the fucking piano. Obviously, yeah. she doesn't say that because she doesn't talk, but it's very obvious that that is what she's thinking about the situation. I like it when she
0: de-sexes the situation by playing a jaunty tune on the piano when he's all <laughs> like down for the one song played repeatedly in slightly different ways and she's like, nope, let's
2: jig." <laughs> I actually wonder whether you tell Kath that one of us chose it. Who, <laughs> you, after he'd made us sit right there. I thought, I wonder if she put her hand up and said, this is my pick, mother. I'm I'm responsible for this.
1: She always asks, who chose this? And occasionally I have to go, yeah, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> so...
2: Okay. Going back to Mickey's point about how where it's set, I do know that sort of in that period, in the Victorian period, there was like a romanticisation of death. You know, Charles Dickens is yeah. really guilty of it. You know, like these these sad women who just die and you know that's the best thing they ever did in the sense of it's like a beautiful death so i think maybe what she's trying to do is sort of replicate that you know and be representative of things of the time but i just it's just misery it's just misery on top of misery and brutal yeah totally and i think
0: you do have to take into account like Ugh. when when it is set and where it is set but coming from the 1990s yes. she still sells
1: it as romance oh yeah yeah that's I agree. my problem with it is that i don't yeah, think I, agree. I i understand that we're obviously we're looking at a character who's from the past in inverted commas but her modern perspective on it we're not invited to think this man's a prick we're we're invited to like this man and think think well of him but what he's doing is coercing her into a sexual relationship with him which is not cool right yeah exactly yeah Yeah.
2: one of the other problems with this is i just don't like her i actually i don't feel anything for her i don't
1: oh i did i mean i appreciate
2: that holly hunter's got like quite an expressive face but the very fact that she doesn't talk means that she's quite opaque a lot of the time and I just couldn't warm to her as a character. I just, there was no one in this to root for. There was, I just, I mean, I rooted for her, obviously, because I wanted to just get out of that terrible situation, not least because her, her daughter's in the middle of it. But I just couldn't, I couldn't warm to it as a performance either. Oh,
0: yeah, I would disagree with you on that one. Yeah, well, me for me, too. like, obviously it's subjective. I thought she was astonishing. Yeah. I just think
1: all the performances are astonishing in this. Shame about the accents, but yeah. Yeah. The... <laughs> Oh my but, God. Yeah, I thought she was great in this. She's an interesting character because she's not very warm and she's not very nice and that's Ugh. sort of the point, isn't it? But yeah. like...
2: To be clear, I don't think Holly Hunter's bad in this. I think it's... I think the character is poorly constructed. Oh, yeah, I, I still don't disagree with I you. Don't, I don't agree yeah, with totally. that. I think that she's
0: not
1: very warm. Very she's, warm. She's angry. She's so yeah. cross that she's in this situation. But oh my God, don't you have... Like, I had so much empathy for her. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I, I just kept going, oh my God,
2: why are these awful things keep happening to you? This is just terrible. I, I mean, I agree with all of this. I just didn't... I could have turned that film off at any point and I didn't give a fuck how it ended. Fair. It's films for you, isn't yeah. it? It's subjective. I, d- I mean,
1: I wouldn't... I didn't enjoy the experience of watching it because it is relentlessly miserable. But, um... <clears throat> And I would say also a bit boring. No, yeah. I disagree with you again. Like I just think mm. it's
0: quite it's quite beautiful and quite haunting. It's just it really brutal and
1: grim. I don't know if it's haunting in a good way, but it is I do agree that it is haunting. I don't know. I mean, I I thought the other thing it does kind of well is it there's kind of like a bit about a sort of lack of understanding or a lack of willing to understand difference as well. That's kind of explored a little bit in it in the way that he's just like who the fuck is this woman? What is she doing? Like, I just cannot relate to her at all, as in her husband, Sam Neil, And then also sort of the way they perceive the Maori people as well. I thought there were some interesting parallels there. I mean, they didn't really go too deep on any of that stuff, but I kind of thought that was an interesting angle.
0: Colonialism, in it? It's colonialism yeah. of the Maoris and also of women, I guess. Yeah. Of the patriarchy. Mm. The white patriarchy at its finest, very much. Capitalism. Yeah. Ownership, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The depiction of the Maoris, I actually find quite problematic. I think it's it's very two dimensional. They're they're kind of quite sexual and they're violent, and they don't understand plays. It makes them seem a bit dim.
1: I didn't like that bit. It was almost as if they were kind of like portrayed as being like a bit backwards or something. Like, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's great. No, I think Flora. And Ada are both quite strong characters though, right? I think so. I mean, Flora's a bit of a dickhead. Why does she snitch on her mum like that?
2: Because she's like five or whatever she is. How old is she supposed to be? Six, Nine or, or whatever. Yeah,
0: she's really young.
2: Yeah. She hasn't had a dad. This is like her grandfather probably wasn't a, an especially good role model, all things considered. So she's just looking for, I don't know, parents. Attention.
4: Yeah, and she's got quite hard life. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: She's been And making a
2: decision not to speak has put like a lot of pressure on her
1: daughter. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. she's implicated in everything, isn't she? Because she has to be yeah. like the go she between. She even has to carry the... the finger. That upset me so much when she's goes to see Harvey Keitel and she's crying and crying and crying. That I found that so distressing to watch. It's really, really fucking unpleasant. I thought it was interesting as well, because Alistair is also a terrible person. And I think we are also invited to feel some sympathy for him too. I saw him described in reviews as,
0: you know, a good man who's just his pride is hurt, and I was like, you can fuck right off. But so yeah, I totally agree with you, Jen.
1: He commits like a, a heinously violent and malicious act against her and sexually assaults her like a bunch of times and i like, i think we're just supposed to think oh well, well you can kind of see why like look what it's... she made him do yeah, i think exactly. that's what we're supposed to yeah. think
2: yeah exactly yeah.
1: this time harvey tells
0: character look what she made him do by being good at the piano and pre. and you're like no no what
2: about what he you might want to do that but just don't that is always an option just don't what i will say for her is she is an absolute fighter uh, there is no there is no giving in in her and in that way I think she's a positive representation like on both occasions where he's like proper physical with her she is holding on to anything to tree roots to whatever yeah. she doesn't give up she just carries on and she's like you're not having it you're not about to do what what you want to do and in on both occasions she loses because obviously women are physically weaker than men but yeah there is no laying back and enjoying it in her. No. And with
0: the brutality of that, with even within the other things that are really distressing about this film, one of the things that really moved me the most is when she's trying to walk away after he's cut her finger off and she keeps fighting and fighting and then she just sinks. And that is like the fight's gone out of her and that is like one of the saddest moments of the film for me. The fight just goes
1: out of her. Her face when she, oh, after he's lops the finger off it's almost like she's trying to maintain some sort of dignity and i just think she is remarkable yeah in it I agree. like just absolutely remarkable but yeah it's it's horrendous utterly annoying. yes
2: a creature <laughs> i didn't enjoy watching it at all i would never watch it again no oh, i don't I would, think i, no, I would <laughs> never watch it again no
1: no no on that bombshell I think this is actually an interesting question. I mean, that's the whole fucking point, isn't it? It's supposed to be an interesting question. i would be interested in the responses to
2: this week's question of rated or dated. Dated. I don't really have anything to add to that. It's dated. It's attitude towards sexual violence belongs in a different century, which it actually does, to be fair to it. It was a different century. But I would say, uh, uh, yeah, not good.
0: I also think it's dated with, with very few caveats, apart from I do think it is beautifully shot. And I think the performances are really powerful, apart from the absence, But yeah, it's dated, not just because it's set in two centuries ago, it's dated because of the attitudes it was still mm. propagating in 1993. D- I did say to my mum, and yet it was written by a woman. <laughs> I know, and do- it, it stings more, mm. I think. And, you know, I probably need to get over that.
1: I guess, like, you know, 30 years ago, all right, it was written by a woman, but, you know, social conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. She's, you know, she's a product of the society we were in 30 years ago. Maybe maybe people didn't look at coercing women into sex in, in the same way. I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, I think it's dated in lots of ways. I, I never, ever, ever want to watch it again, but uh, <laughs> I think it is really beautiful and I think the performances are incredible. I did wonder... Could they not have just got some Scottish actors in? Because it's not like there aren't any. We've just not done the accents. Oh, Harvey Keitel, it's not good, is it? It's not good. (laughs) Okay, who's next? Can you uplift us from this?
0: Well, I can only try, can't I? It's it's me. And I am actually going to do a little poll. So there are two in the running and one is only 15 years old, which is our very bare minimum of birthdays, the rated or dated. I think I know what it is. And we still I'm no, I'm genuinely rarely, nervous. Rarely go there. And the other one is one of what like, is a film I love, so I'm a little bit nervous to put in front of you. So we're gonna decide as a group, are we gonna watch Twilight? Yes. No. <laughs> or are we gonna watch Elf? Twilight, please, Twilight, please. The enthusiasm coming from the offered quarter here, or the offered third means that twilight is going to win hannah we're going to watch some sparkly teenage vampires
2: don't make me have a nervous breakdown to outdo her no you
1: are going to lose your ship will
0: hannah survive
1: more news next week
3: (laughs) standard issue for all women